This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. This week, your host, Michael Green, speaks with Peter Ward, OAM, one of Victoria's leading criminal law practitioners for over 40 years. Peter has spent his entire career at the firm of Galbally and O'Brien and worked on some of the most high-profile cases in Victorian history, including the Wall Street police killings in 1988. Like most practitioners, Peter had to work incredibly hard to prove himself at the start of his career. No one he knew had worked in the law and he had no real connections. But Peter also had the additional challenge of being born with only 10% vision. Do you think that you had to work harder than other people because of the vision impairment? I think initially I did. I was, in my early days in particular, I was known for my enthusiasm and willingness to go out at night and um, advise clients at police stations. But I, I think I had to try harder. Just because you have a vision impairment, it doesn't affect your speech or your ability to communicate. But people may be, you know, kind and gracious towards you, but some people think, oh, he can't see too well, therefore he he wouldn't be an effective advocate. So I think I've probably spent my life trying harder to compensate and make up for it. to welcome this morning as our guest on Lives in the Law, Peter Ward. Peter has been a long-time criminal law solicitor in Victoria at the very well-known firm of Galbally and O'Brien. Peter, good morning and thank you for coming along to talk to us. A pleasure, Michael. Peter, take us back to the start, your childhood. Yes. Your mum and dad and your brother. Where? What sort of a family were you in? Well, I came from a working-class family we lived in the poorer part of Hawthorne in Glenferry and my dad worked in a grocer's shop uh, op- uh, in, in the shop opposite our home. My mum was a part-time secretary but devoted her lives and uh, I have one brother who um, I tried to emulate but very difficult to do so. Difficult to do so because of well, his intellectual ability? Yes, he he topped every class at St John's, at Marcelin and, um, and university and uh, he, in a way, was responsible for me trying to achieve something. The other factor, apart from a loving family, including your brother, that helped you achieve something or may have helped you achieve something might be the fact that you were born with only 10% vision. Yes, um, I I was for the first five years. And in those days, Michael, relatives used to live near each other. I guess for the first five years of my life, I was surrounded by family in Glenferry. And I I can't remember going anywhere except maybe the odd trip into the city. So my life was very happy, very closeted. 
And the eyesight factor really didn't kick in because I was with people I knew. What about at school? You went to a local primary school in Glenfrey Road there, St John's. Yes. Having 10% vision, one, it must have affected your school, but two, I wonder about going to, uh, not going to a school for the vision impaired. Yes. Well, coming to the second point first, uh, my mother was quite upset about my condition when I was a child, so I'm told. And she took me to an ophthalmologist, a very renowned ophthalmologist, and apart from attempting to diagnose what was wrong, um, she asked him about school. Should I send him to a vision-impaired school or, or whatever? He said, send him to a normal school and metaphorically, if he falls over, then pursue other options. Fortunately for me, uh, she took the advice and I went to a normal school. Coming to your second point, it was a challenge having poor vision. I emphasised that I was treated extremely well by teachers and fellow classmates. Once I got used to or familiar with the environment, as I went on, I developed strategies to cope. By the time I got to year 10, because that's where the school ended, I was part of the furniture. No one looked twice at me anymore. And did you actually stand up from your seat in the class, walk up the front to the blackboard and stand in front of the blackboard so that you could read it? Correct. Yeah, correct. Some teachers used to say, I'll get a bit of help with the... um, boy next to you. But no, that's what I did. And admittedly, perhaps I was embarrassed initially doing that, but having spent 11 years at the school, the kids got used to it and um, they called me warty and they'd say, get out the way. And it was just a normal part of schooling. From that day until this, you've been a great football fan. <laughs> Yes. You even played football at your that school, St John's, we went to year 10. Yes. Tell me about you playing football with 10% vision. That sounds scary to me, Peter. Well, naturally I was with the no-hopers <laughs> um, and I was uh, on sports day. We were segregated into different teams. On sports day I would be playing with the kids, A, that didn't really want to be there and I just battled along. But the conclusion was I was hopeless. (laughs) You may have been a great football talent but uh, held back by (laughs) lack of vision. We'll we'll never know, Peter. That's right. It's funny when you're a kid, when I was four or five, I was absolutely convinced I'd be playing for Hawthorne. Well, that's, uh, and in fact, I guess all kids are four or five convinced they're going to play for the team that they barrack for. That's right, Michael. In those days, of course, there were quite a sprinkling of at least Catholic schools around Melbourne that went to year 10, and then after year 10, you moved on to another school. Yes. Um, And you did that. I went to Marcelon to do year 11 and 12. Didn't enjoy Marcelon bearing in mind that's 50, over 50 years ago, so it's a different kettle of fish today. But I had to adjust to 
people I didn't know, new classmates. And whereas when I was at St John's, everyone knew me and accepted me for what I was, at Marshall, it took me a while. I started to adjust in about September or October in my second year then when I was then doing matriculation. But I think part of the reason, to be truthful, that I didn't enjoy Marshall was that I had to adjust again. You go on to do law at Monash. Ah, yes. No family connection to law, no particular reason why, and yet you say from about year eight, when you would have been... 13 to 14, you wanted to be a lawyer. Well, that's right. In year eight, it, it was a funny experience. I remember we had to write down at school what we wanted to be and I spoke, I spelt lawyer incorrectly and the teacher looked at me and said, I think you're going to have a few problems um, intellectually. But I used to walk past the old Hawthorne Court and police station on my way to school and I used to see the people congregating around and I thought, gee, I'd love to be a part of that. After year nine, I didn't think my results would would get me into law and I put it out, out of my mind. And turning now to year 12... If you're a humanities person, hated the uh, science subjects, uh, there was really only a choice of arts or law. And I think I got into law on the fifth preference. I must have been about the last person admitted. And um, I was pleased to do law, but by that stage, I'd set my mind on becoming a teacher. So I thought I'd do the preliminary degree, which was a Bachelor of Jurisprudence, and then move on to do a Bachelor of Education. A a priest in our local parish community got me a week's work experience at at a Catholic secondary school. I did that and hated it. Just I thought, how could anyone want to be in that environment And from that day onwards, I um, turned my attention to the law. Peter, you say that so much of law was reading from a textbook rather than looking at a board, which made it easier for you than school. Absolutely. And indeed, year 11 and 12, going back to my Marsan days, the board was rarely used. So it was easier because I'd learned how to... Uh, If I couldn't see what was written on the board, I used to dive into the textbooks and follow what was happening from the textbook. You're you're right. Law, although there was piles of reading, I was, I am able to read. It looks very awkward and very close to the page, but funnily enough, I'm a relatively quick reader. Would it be right to assume that because of your vision impairment and and having to read the books yourself, it may have sharpened up your analytical skills? I think so. On that point, I quickly learned, although people treated me very well, there was no such thing as AIDS in those days. I quickly learned that you've got to do it yourself whilst people were kind and gracious and offered to help. I quickly learned that to overcome 
that sort of problem, you have to uh, knuckle down and do it yourself. Did you need to do things in any different way well, because of the vision impairment? Uh, oh, yes. I, I had to make a number of adjustments. Uh, two, for example, were that I memory was a very important tool and it was just instinct because of the vision. And secondly, you adopt strategies. For example, one of the minor strategies, but it would exemplify a point, I'd say go to the Frankston Court to meet a client I'd seen only once and I wouldn't recognise at a distance and to save embarrassment, I would stand in a prominent place but with my head deliberately looking elsewhere. So they would come up to me, whereas if I was focused on the door, for example, I wouldn't see the person and the client would say, oh, he can't even see us. So I developed some strategies to compensate. I must say I was was always a bit embarrassed about my vision, which my friends tell me off for, but um, I was always conscious of it and I developed different strategies to compensate. At this time you came in contact with other vision-impaired people for the first time. Yes. Through the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. That's so. I later served on the board of RVIB for 20 years, but I came into contact because I wanted to do work during the school and, oh, not so much school, but the uni holidays. And I knew that to get a job, I had to go through quite a lot of places. I had to declare my vision. I knew people would be sceptical. So someone said, well, the RBIB have a factory. So I rang up, said I was vision impaired, and I worked weighing nails in this uh, factory for vision impaired blind people at the RBIB, and uh, I learned so much at that factory that it was unbelievable. Working at that factory with vision-impaired people, did you see a difference between most of those people and yourself? Yes. I wasn't better than them, nor was I uh, more intelligent than a number of them. I think I went in with a preconceived notion that they would be non-educated and struggling perhaps intellectually or when I got there, I remember the guy next to me and he was totally blind doing some factory work and he started discussing politics, unions, world affairs and I quickly discovered that there were a lot of people there at the time who were in the factory because opportunities didn't pass their way. And I thought how sad it was, and I'm not demeaning these good people, that people with such astute minds were destined to work in a, in, on an assembly line. And the other thing I learned is that regardless of any handicap that we have, you have to live in a society where the norm is not you in in one particular way. 
And I learned that it's far better to try and be part of society rather than being segregated and separated into a group. And that takes you back to your mum and the ophthalmologist and what a good decision was made then. I, I keep thanking my mother and the ophthalmologist for giving that advice. You finish your law degree and it's the days, of course, of articles. You have to get articles to get admitted. Was it easy for you to get articles? No, although in the end, maybe, I think I've been extremely lucky. I applied for over 40 firms and declared my vision issue and I got 40 knockbacks. So I thought this is going to be interesting. David Gelbley, an eminent QC and son of the legendary Frank Gelbley, was in my year at uni and heard that I was having difficulty getting a positive response and said, look, Frank might be able to help you. And I gained an, gained an interview. In a way, you could say that the vision impairment got me to meet Frank because I had no aspirations necessarily to do criminal law. I just wanted wanted a job. I was newly married and thought I should support the family that would come along. So David arranged an appointment. Initially, Frank said he knew people in uh, at the public solicitor's office and legal aid and he'd try and get me a job. And for some reason, although we were diversely different people, we clicked somehow and in the end he said, oh, look, it's only articles, it's only 12 months, come in here and do your articles and that's how I got articles. And what was your experience of articles? Oh, it was magnificent. They were really good articles because I attached myself to Frank and went to court with him. Although he taught me a lot, some of the things he did no one else could do. So you couldn't emulate him. I couldn't emulate his voice, his manner. There are things that I couldn't copy, but uh, he was very generous to me and we developed a very close relationship. So, Peter, despite Frank Gelbley telling you they would give you articles for 12 months and help you find a job somewhere else after articles, here it is. 48 years later, and you are still at Gelbling and O'Brien. What happened? Well, I accompanied Frank to the Oakley Magistrates Court on the 4th of November 1974, and in the car going back to the office, Frank said to me, would you like to stay on and work as a solicitor? Well... I was very emotional. I hope he didn't see a tear. But I was very emotional, very grateful. I'd newly been married the previous December and obviously I was thinking about what work I would do and for Frank Gelbley to personally ask me to stay on was uh, a momentous moment. Hence, I remember the time that he asked me and I remembered where I was. In being article to Frank Gelbley and working with Frank Gelbley, you worked with literally one of the giants of the legal profession in Victoria, certainly when you and I were young yes. lawyers, Peter. He was the highest profile lawyer, certainly in the state of Victoria. Yep. What did you learn from him? 
I learned. I, I was fascinated with his ability to relate to people. He was equally at home with the Prime Minister. He had a relationship with Malcolm Fraser and and a person down and out and uh, effectively very uh, underprivileged. So he related, and hence this was demonstrated in his jury appeal when he was addressing juries, he had the capacity to read people, understand people and and relate to them. Peter, I wonder with working with Frank Galbally, did you learn things about the tactics of running matters, strategies for trials and cases, how you deal with the prosecution, the police, the bench, etc.? Were those things you learned from him? Yes, I, I learned many things from him. Number one was he read the bench and I'm still staggered today how many young people don't put any emphasis on reading the bench. When Frank drove me to courts when he was appearing, he would always say, Jack X is sitting, you know, he's a, he, he's a wonderful man, he likes so-and-so. He knew the bench impeccably He also used to put a lot of work into tactics. What he did, which I thought was very humorous, he'd be cross-examining a policeman. And as you know, Michael, the stripes can detect what rank they are, whether they're a Connie or a senior Connie or a sergeant. And he deliberately would call a sergeant inspector when when he was cross-examining because he wanted he just wanted to get them on side and it, that was one of his strategies. But he was for tactics and strategies and I learned a lot from that. Although he was number one in terms of advocacy, I would say in Australia, but definitely Victoria, he always treated police with respect. A lot of police were a bit coy or nervous in front of him, but he always put them at ease and treated police with enormous respect. And that was deliberately tactical to get the best possible result for his client? I I would say that it was part of his personality, but he definitely used his uh, brain power to know that if you don't treat people with respect, you won't get much in return. You were also mentored in your articles year by Tony Howard. Yes. Who was later a county court judge. And the husband of the governor of our state who I saw the other day. Initially, I thought, oh, he's always picking up mistakes that I make. But I soon learned it was his device to teach me. Tony taught me to be thorough. I think before I met Tony, I was a little bit slapdash in some things I did and and say to myself, oh, that'll be okay. But Tony taught me to be prepared, taught me how to deal with the crown, and he really is a a wonderful human being and uh, I owe a lot to Tony Howard Over the next 20 years, you go from being article clerk to employee solicitor to associate, salaried partner, equity partner, so you become one of the the owners, I guess, of Gelbling O'Brien. That's right, and uh, 
that was uh, probably one of the most moving experiences when I was asked by Peter O'Brien, the partner who managed the office to become a partner, I was very emotional, very grateful and uh, very privileged and proud to be part of what I think is a great firm. I'm assuming here from my own experience, Peter, that you weren't consciously trying to climb the ladder. You were working hard each day at doing the best job you could for your client and for the firm and these promotions came about? Well, I was the first non-family member to be given equity partnership. So I didn't think it was attainable. I just loved my work intently and I used to just throw myself into it. I never really thought of promotions because I didn't think they were they were there. I thought I thought I might get to be an associate if I kept there, but I had no idea that I would be given the honour and the privilege of being a partner. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Moving on to your work, as a, I mean, historically, the profession in Victoria has been divided between solicitors who don't do appearances and barristers who do do appearances. And and the one notable exception in my early time in the law was obviously Frank Gelberley. Do you do, do you or did you do many appearances yourself and, and oh, to what level in the court system? I was junior to Mr Frank Gelberley in a couple of trials, especially the Crope trial, which was an amazing experience. In the early days, I did a number of pleas and appeals in the county court, but basically my true love was the magistrate's court. I would be appearing nearly every day of the week. And and doing pleas and contests and whatever came along. That's right. Just getting to know the system and I was at home in the magistrate's court. Were you effectively a barrister within the firm? I mean, did other firm members brief you to do their appearances in the magistrate's court? No. Or did you only do your own matters? No, I did my own matters. And the structure of the firm would be that solicitors would do their own appearances and brief counsel. A change came about in recent years when matters became far more complex and the role of a solicitor intensified. For example, in the early days, you would brief counsel and apart from doing the basic necessary work, you would go off and do your own appearances. But the amount of preparation and the solicitor plays a lot bigger role in briefing counsel. So although... Today, our solicitors do do appearances. There's far more emphasis on briefing counsel. I was aware myself of the Magistrates' Court becoming far more complex as the years went by. Yes. It seemed to me back when you and I started that the Magistrates' Court was a bit rough and ready in the justice, but they got it right in nine cases out of 10 or 99 out of 100. Is it a change for the better, the extra complexity within all of these matters, criminal matters that come before the Magistrates' Court? 
Well, I think it's six of one, half a dozen another. I think some of the complexity now is unnecessary, but others is. We must remember that the jurisdiction of the magistrate's court has increased incredibly. When I started, take a common burglary or theft, the limit was $500. In other words, if you, if a, if a person did a burglary and stole something worth $600 in the early days, you had to go to trial in the county court. Now the limit is 100000 So the jurisdiction in the magistrate's court has just magnified. And I admire our magistrates because they do so many cases having to make quick decisions. They're working under enormous pressure and they do a great job. As a solicitor in criminal law, you are a hub, so to speak, where you've got relationships with client, the police, counsel, the bench. Can you sketch out for us the role of a solicitor now in, you you touched on the fact it is more complex and therefore maybe less chance to do appearances. Can you sketch it out for us a bit what role a solicitor plays now? Well, the solicitor normally, there are exceptions, has first contact with the client. And often you're advising a client how to deal with the police advice on interviews. The solicitor's got to get the confidence of the client and a relationship of trust and respect then builds up. You have to be quite invasive as a solicitor. You're going into their background, their drug or alcohol issues, family violence. There's so many factors that lead to the commission of criminal offences that you need to be on top of that before you can think about going to court. The solicitor who does their appearances virtually has a relationship with the client from beginning to end. So the solicitor, although perhaps doing less appearances today, has a very important role. Peter, I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned, which is it maybe starts with giving advice on interviews with the police. When I started in the law, the basic position was you told your client to say no comment. Is that still the case? I think in the majority of cases it is. However, if you're satisfied that your client is articulate and will not cave under pressure, sometimes articulating what occurred can be advantageous. You're absolutely right. The majority of times, especially when you don't have a lot of time to interview the client before interview, is to say no comment. But I don't think it should be a hard and fast rule. Tell them to say nothing. I think sometimes it can be very advantageous to talk. What about dealing with the police as a solicitor? Are they always the opposition? Is there an adversarial relationship with the police or is there a cooperative relationship as well? I think uh, there's a cooperative relationship and if I may share a short story, it's changed a lot. Initially, the local sergeant would prosecute at the magistrate's court 
One day I went to court in the early days before a prosecution's division was established and the fellow had a face uh, that was scarred and bruised and I said, oh, what happened to you? He said, your bloody client last night punched me. So that sort of hampered appropriate negotiations. Now they have a separate prosecution's division and I would say in the main it takes two to tango, but I would say the relationship between solicitors, barristers and the prosecution division in negotiation is highly professional. And as long as you respect each other's view, then I think it works fine. But I think the detachment from the early days where the local sergeant who spent the night with your client possibly swearing and abusing him, the prosecution division don't have any contact with the client so they can more objectively analyse what's appropriate. I'd like to move on to some of the cases you've done which gathered a lot of publicity in their time. And the one that immediately comes to mind, of course, was the murder of two police officers in Wall Street, South Yarra in 1988, officers Stephen Tynan and Damien Eyre. You acted for one of the accused, Peter McAvoy. Can you tell us about the case? Yes. The strategy you employed and the outcome of it? Well, first of all, before I say a few things, I'd like to say it was a complete tragedy. Anyone dealing with that case would have enormous sympathy to the families of the victims. I remember before I got the case, I was at Paran and I went in and offered condolences. And this uh, came about as part of what happened. The police were very, in general, justifiably very angry and very emotional and I went into the police station to offer condolences and then I got a call from one of the suspects, Peter McAvoy. Now, Wall Street, apart from the tragedy, had a significant impact on future police investigations. The problem the police had in Wall Street, and it's highly understandable, is that those investigating were very angry, wanted revenge. I don't mean physical revenge, but just were hell-bent on prosecuting and making judgment calls on the suspects. Since Wall Street, that impacted on police at a higher level. And the police these days, in general sense, are far more objective, far more professional, far more prepared in their casework than they were at Wall Street. Because, as you can imagine, Michael, the Wall Street killings had enormous impact on the normal police officer. And so that was clearly understood. It was leaked to the media that Peter McAvoy and others were suspects in the killing and there was a lot of adverse publicity. I thought that that would be very harmful to the prospects of a fair trial. So we gave a press conference at the Sandringham Yacht Club with Peter McAvoy present 
and the tenor of the conference went this way. We said, look, it's been said that Peter McAvoy is a suspect. He proclaimed his innocence. If they say he's a suspect and that he's done this horrific, this horrific crime, bring it on and charge him. And I think that strategy was the cause of an early arrest because on the one hand they were saying these four fellows had done it, yet they hadn't charged them. What our strategy was was to bring it on Get, get them charged. And when I took Peter into the police station for an interview, the atmosphere was horrific because justifiably the police were very angry. It took a lot of strategy to brief uh, appropriate counsel. The QC was the late Robert Vernon, who was a great orator and a great facts man. The junior was now... Casey, uh, Patrick Tean, who was a wizard with the law. A fair trial was conducted and they were acquitted. Now, Peter, we get to the very heart of the matter here, and this one is a very personal question that's got me concerned. You connived in Richmond losing the 1982 <laughs> VFL Premiership. I want you to explain to me who Helen D'Amico was what part did she play in losing that premiership for the Tigers and how did you help her? Well, it, the Helen D'Amico story started on the Friday afternoon. I had a phone call. Sorry, Peter, this is the Friday afternoon before, before the grand final. Before the grand the final. The day before, yep. Yep. Just got a phone call. A, a chap rang and said, do you guys have an after-hour service? In other words, if we get arrested, can we get help? And I said, of course we have an after-hour service. We would help at any time. Stupidly, and I regret it, I said, well, I hope you're not going to commit a crime or do anything stupid. We do have an after-hour service, but uh, just be very careful. And I said, why are you asking the question? And he said, well... Uh, there's going to be a streaker at the grand final in the second quarter. I didn't pay much attention to it. All I said to the gentleman was, we have an after-hour service. I'm watching the grand final with some mates, and I said to my mates, I'm told there's going to be a streaker, but it's probably rubbish. Sure enough, nothing happened, and my mates at half-time said, oh, you're full of it. Uh, what are you on about? And it happened in the third quarter when this woman ran onto the ground and wrapped a scarf around Bruce Dool. I don't think it had any effect on the Richmond players. That's because it, you don't break for Richmond, Peter. That's true. Uh, but Dooley, it either inspired him or rattled him, but the Blues went on and won. But it was an amazing uh, situation. I got the phone call, as indicated by the Friday afternoon, and she was scheduled to appear at the Melbourne Magistrates Court on the Monday. She attracted the biggest media contingent that I've ever seen, and that includes all the murders that we were involved in, high-profile cases, and the media throng was just unbelievable. Indeed, I had to protect her from being 
uh, trampled. And Frank was upset because he wasn't—he was some distance away and couldn't get to us. She received a thousand-dollar fine. Apparently, she wanted a mud wrestling contract. And the phone calls that afternoon, factory workers, the community thought this poor girl won't have the money. It was like taking calls for a telephone. If we had accepted the money, I think I could have raised thirty or $40,000. Um, but naturally, we didn't take any money. And she got offered $500 to appear on the Don Lane show if it was her intention to attract publicity, and I don't know whether it was, she did a damn good job. And the late Brian Clovier, the magistrate, had to impose a heavy fine, which it was in those days, to dissuade other people from doing the same thing. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city, This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. Peter, you were fortunate to have two outstanding mentors in Frank Gobley and Tony Howard. I was. And you found being a mentor a highly rewarding part of your own career. Can I ask you... What do you think makes a good mentor and is there any particular advice you'd give to mentors? Yes, I think when one watches a court hearing, and I'll come to the point, people think, oh, especially in the magistrate's court, lawyers just give a bit of background and hope for the best. The advice I'd give to mentors is, one, get the young person to watch and learn. I know, hearkening back to myself, I learned a lot by attending court, waiting to get on and just watching and learning. Secondly, I would advise mentors to tell the young person that they need to respect police and the magistrates, learn the habits of the bench and learn as much as you can about the personality and propensity of the tribunal, whether it be a magistrate, a county court judge, etc. The big lesson, however, is preparation. It really annoys me when I hear some young solicitors say, oh, it was just a .05 plea, pretty easy. Every case and dealing with clients, they deserve the best attention and preparation is the key. So they're the three factors that I would, if asked, to pass on to prospective mentors. In hearing what you said then and in hearing what you said about Frank Gelbley, would it be right to say the overarching theme in all of your dealings as a lawyer with everyone you come in contact with is respect? Yes, I think that's that's incredible. In particular, I talk about clients. The worst thing you can do as a lawyer is be judgmental. Someone comes in and they've assaulted someone, they've 
using drugs and commit crimes. We don't, until we find out, we don't initially know their backgrounds. And who knows, we could have been in the same position if we didn't have wonderful, caring background, good examples, and perhaps in my case, the Mara's Mara's brothers keeping us under control. Judgmental people don't have a place in the practice of criminal law. It surely must be very hard to remain non-judgmental when confronted with some horrific circumstances. Well, that's true, but remember that especially in a not guilty plea, you're following your instructions. And some people say, oh, who, who would believe that story? Well, who are we to play God and go beneath their instructions. What if we're wrong? What if a client came in with a horrific case and I thought to myself, oh, that's dreadful, that's terrible, and I made a judgment and said, oh, he's guilty, and it turned out that he wasn't guilty. You are bound to follow your instructions, and if you don't, you're not playing your role. In fact, it's gravely wrong to be judgmental in those circumstances. So your duty is to follow instructions and not be judgmental. Peter, in December of 2021, you were given a farewell from the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Um, To my knowledge, not a common occurrence. How did that come about and what did it entail? I think it came about because I had the privilege of mentoring a lot of people who ended up taking judicial appointments. And I think it would have been initiated by some of those people who, for some reason, thought I may have assisted them. And I think because of my long association with the court and the mentoring of so many people who attained judicial offices, facilitated that farewell. I must say I was very overwhelmed by that. Oh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tribute. I mean, it's normally the sort of thing we only expect of a retiring magistrate or judge, but to do it uh, for a member of the profession, a practising member of the profession, says volumes of the respect in which you are held by the bench in general. Well, I, yeah, I think I was very fortunate. Then you were awarded an OIM I think earlier this year. Well, it's interesting with the OAM, I learnt this uh, subsequently, a person who nominates someone has to do a lot of work by way of submission and uh, contacting people that you work with. And I owe the OAM uh, largely to my wife and brother who did the groundwork Going to Government House was a real experience and I uh, reunited, in a sense, with Tony Howard, who I hadn't seen for a a number of years. So it was a very humbling experience, but um, I do say that I know of people who would deserve that award far greater than me. Peter, it's been fascinating today to sit here and talk to you about your career in the law, your journey starting from uh, St John's in Glenfrey Road, Hawthorne all those years ago through to today when you're still a practising member of the firm of Galbally and O'Brien in a limited sense. 
to hear your story has got a degree of inspiration in it. Peter, I know you mightn't like the word, but it has got a degree of inspiration for all of us and I'm sure to the people who listen. So thank you very much for coming in today. It's been a great pleasure, Michael, and thank you. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today. today.